Thank you, God, that you give us the best, the sweetest, the most wonderful gift in the gospel of Jesus. The good news that because he died and rose again, um, we can be freely forgiven and brought into relationship with you. Um, please help us not to add anything to that. Please keep us from that great mistake of adding in extra things and then ruining that good news. Uh, help us to always remember that that's wonderful news for us and to believe it and trust it and live in its good light. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reading today is from Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Our Father, uh, we just pray as we look at this letter that you would please show us just how uh, amazing is your heart that you love us so much and that you, you really want us to depend on you and to throw ourselves on you. Please help us now uh, to have clear heads and open minds and hearts to your word and your spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you live your life in line with grace? That's the big question I would like to be asking throughout this series on Galatians. Living in line with grace, always only grace, is that you? Maybe you understand grace. Maybe you, you love the idea of grace. Maybe it's one of your favorite words and maybe you can even explain it to others. But do you live in line with grace? Because it's a matter of the head and the heart and the spirit. This is a question for new believers and for long, long-term believers. If today, this morning, you're an unbeliever with us, it may not be your question yet, but my hope is that as we talk about God's grace, you'll be so captivated by it, so amazed that the God of the universe could do the things for us that we understand him to have done, that you'll be captivated by that and grab hold of it with both hands. And then this question, do you live your life in line with grace, will also be your question. Because many of us don't. Many of us start with grace but we, we sort of move on to something else or we flip back to old patterns or we understand it conceptually 
but not personally. It doesn't drill down through our minds into our hearts. Galatians is a letter written around 50 AD. Now that's very, very early on as far as Christian documents are concerned. This is less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the church is trying to sort a range of things out. These churches um, that Paul is writing to in Galatia, they're churches that he himself had planted just a few years earlier in the area that we now call southern Turkey. And you can read about this in Acts chapters 13 and 14, get some of the backstory there. Now, one of the big challenges that the early churches faced, and it's front and center here in Galatians, is the issue of ethnicity, ethnicity. Now, perhaps you've seen recently on TV or catch up the recent documentaries about former AFL player Adam Goods, and this whole issue of race has been raised there for a number of seasons in a row. He was booed by the opposition every time he got the ball. And eventually it took its toll and he had to retire early from the sport. Racism may not be what it once was, but it is still an issue that we're thinking through as a nation. However, ethnicity issues in Galatians are not about racism. They are about the history of faith. In particular, they're about the the true understanding of the grace of God. It had originally been revealed in a very particular ethnic context to a particular nation, Israel. But then, through what Jesus did, it's now been revealed and made known and made available to every race on the planet. And so what's happening in this transition from an ethnic uh, faith to a faith oriented global thing is there's a grinding of the gears, the crunching, as the transition is happening from the people of God having an ethnic identity to the people of God having a faith identity. So as we all read this letter, we're going to come across some odd words and some odd ideas. Some of them are very significant uh, religious and ceremonial words and concepts, words like Judaism and Jerusalem and the works of the law and special seasons, customs, and so on. And of course, the big one, circumcision. Circumcision gets mentioned 13 times in this letter. So to some extent, we've got to translate these concepts into our modern, uh, into our modern relevance. And, and, but I think we'll see that they translate very clearly into um, life for the church today. So let's dive into Galatians 1. And straight away, as soon as we start reading, There is the core message of Christianity, the gospel. Now, the gospel is not a mantra where you've got to get the wording exactly precise in order for it to work. No, there are many different ways that we can express the gospel, different words, different contexts and all that. In fact, in Galatians 3, Paul will say that the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham. That's thousands of years beforehand, and the words used that were said to Abraham that Paul says were the gospel were these words, all nations will be blessed through you. That was the gospel message, that God was going to bless the world through Abraham's descendant, Jesus. And if you were here for the Joseph series, you know how much, we, you know, how much God worked the circumstances together to preserve that um, Abraham's descendants. 
So the gospel is not a new thing. It's got very deep historical roots in God's dealing with human beings. The whole Old Testament points to what God would do in Jesus when the time was fulfilled. And now that Jesus has come, the details of the gospel have been filled out for us. And we can say a lot more about the gospel now than Abraham could. And so here in Galatians 1, Paul gives us two very brief summaries of the gospel, this core message of Christianity. The first is there in verse 3. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a greeting. But this is more here than just, you know, grandma says hi. It's a reminder, even in his greeting, that grace has come to us from God and that this grace has had an effect. And that effect is peace, grace and peace from God. And then there's a second summary in verses 4 and 5, and it bounces straight off the first one. The Lord Jesus Christ, then verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a very helpful summary. Jesus gave himself to be our rescuer, and he did that through what he did on the cross, rescuing us from this present evil age. I don't know if you think of this as an evil age, but it seems to be that's the reason why Jesus gave himself. God is telling us that it is an evil age. According to the will of God, the God and Father, of God the Father and for his glory... And so we've got both the Father and the Son are involved in this act of salvation. And it had a purpose even beyond the preservation of our dear selves that God should be seen for who and what he truly is. And that is eternally glorious. Okay, this is the news. This is the gospel. God has acted and we've been saved. It's the big news of the universe. To become a Christian is to accept this and to grab hold of it. This message saves you if you believe it. This information from God about God is our precious treasure. If someone had developed a cure for cancer, it would come in the form of some kind of message. Maybe there would be a new understanding of how cancer works. Maybe there'd be some sort of process to follow for the treatment uh, and, or maybe for the development of a medication. Now, you wouldn't want that message to get lost or to be improved upon by some well-meaning person. It would threaten the cure. Well, Paul is about to tell us that the gospel message is under threat and he is astonished that it is all happening. Verse 6, I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
So he's talking about getting it wrong, messing with the message. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time on the question of getting it wrong. And there's two parts of the rest of this talk. Firstly, there's the surprise of getting it wrong. And secondly, the results of getting it wrong. And there are three sub points for each as we'll go through shortly. Okay, point one, the surprise of getting it wrong. Firstly, we don't like the idea of right and wrong in the first place. It's not the way we like to talk these days. I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, when someone says, you know, seems to have a right-wrong argument, we check out. We don't want to have those right-wrong conversations, especially in relation to faith. I understand that. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this one this week because next week we'll look at Paul's claim to be speaking with the authority of Jesus himself. And uh, we've actually just skipped over verses 1 and 2 where he does the same. But we'll, we'll look at that more next week. But for now, I just want to note that this idea of getting it right and getting it wrong might put us off balance. Uh, we run the risk of disengaging because of this idea of a truth claim. But I think we need to bear with Paul and hear him out. Secondly, the second reason getting it wrong might be surprising to us is that the gospel is not that complex. God saved us through Christ. God showed us his grace by taking the penalty of our sins himself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Not that complex in some senses. So then how are we at risk of getting it wrong? And let me introduce you a little bit more to the problem in Galatia. There are some Jewish Christians, that is, they, they were ethnically Jews, and they've come to Christ, they've, they've believed in Jesus, just like you and I have, from that ethnic background. But they're finding it difficult to accept the idea that if non-Jews also become Christians, that they don't also need to become Jews as well. And that, of course, is where circumcision comes in. This was the sign for the males of becoming a Jew. So the problem is not that the gospel is complex. It's that each of us brings to the table other ideas of what makes a person right with God. All of us do it, actually. It's not just these Jews in Galatia. We add in our own code our own morality expectations into this cake mix and we ruin the cake. And what a wonderful illustration that was. Thank you, Duncan. <laughs> of course, it doesn't seem that serious to us. For the Jewish Christians stirring the pot in Galatia, they're just thinking, you know, come on, Israel, this was the nation that was given the law of Moses and given the sacrifices and the temple and the priests. All of that was amazing. And it, it brought cleansing to this nation of Israel. They were the set-apart people from the, from the rest. They had this, this word, the Gentiles, the nations, which meant the rest. We were the ones who were set apart because this is, God has given us the means to be clean and to be right with him and so forth. And so if ever a Gentile, before Jesus came, if ever a Gentile wanted to uh, come to God, they needed to come to Israel. There was no other way. 
and many Gentiles did. So these false teachers, they believe in Jesus, but they're also saying salvation has come from the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. And so don't remain a sinful Gentile. Join us and become a righteous Israelite in Christ. Do we bring some kind of code of morality expectations in to mess with the message? We've got to be asking that question. The third surprise is that this modified message resonates with us. We want to be able to contribute something to our own salvation. It's like the big family dinner. We don't want to be the deadweight who comes along without having brought anything. You know, oh, they've got the casserole, they've got the potato bake, someone's brought a bottle of wine and, oh, I didn't bring anything. We want to be seen as good people, contributors. We want to have a level of self-determination as well. And grace alone, is, it's actually a very confronting idea. You know, you may even feel that it's disempowering because we have to throw ourselves entirely on the mercy of God. Where's my personal dignity in that? What can I say that I've achieved? How can I sing I did it my way at my funeral? Well, I can't sing anything at my funeral, but how can they sing it for me? Please don't do that song at your funeral. And don't ask others to do it either. However, Galatians is going to teach us that grace is actually liberating. More than that, it's the key to human flourishing. Grace strips away our pretense, our self-righteousness, strips away our ignorance, our anxieties, strips away our selfishness. And it creates an unshakable platform for empowered living. That's what I hope we'll see over the next few weeks. So that's the surprise of getting it wrong. Secondly, the results of getting it wrong. And let's turn back to the passage and reread verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. He says exactly the same thing again now. Verse 9, as I've already said, I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He's underlining it. He's serious about this. And so the first result that we see of getting it wrong is that these teachers are cursed. These false teachers are cursed. Wow. And notice that Paul even potentially includes himself in this. You know, he's come in as the apostle and he's, he's preached this message to them in the authority of Christ, which we'll look at next week. Uh, but if he were to come back with a different message, he's saying, don't listen to me if I do that. Even he should fit under this if he messes with the message or tweaks it, even he should be in trouble. And let's not kid around. Being under God's curse, this, this, these are the big guns here. This is a terrifying prospect. It's deadly serious because the gospel is a matter of life and death. 
If that cure for cancer is sabotaged and people, as a result, succumb to their disease then unnecessarily, then there is guilt on the head of the saboteur. This idea of hell is hard, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think we park it uh, in this secure underground facility where it can never get out, out of sight and maybe out of mind. You know, when you're sharing the gospel with friends or family or colleagues or neighbours, do you, do you talk about hell? It may not be the sort of thing you lead off with, but, you, you know, but it might create an interesting conversation. Do you believe in hell? Do you believe that God holds us to account for the way we've lived our lives? And that his judgment on sinners who reject Christ is to shut them out eternally from his presence and away from all of the things, the good things that he has created for our enjoyment? Do you believe that? These ideas are so appalling. I think we sometimes find them hard to stomach. But for a minute, just think about what an impact it would have on your sharing of the gospel if this idea of hell is in your minds and relevant to the people you're talking to. Perhaps we might have a little bit more urgency in our efforts we might be a little less worried about whether people think we're weird if we really think there is a possibility that they may be cast out of God's presence for eternity. Have you been following uh, in the media this, um, this dispute between Israel Folau and Rugby Australia? I don't know, maybe you think that's not how you play football, so it's not relevant. Um, it's... it's uh, Nothing to do with that, actually. Perhaps you've been a bit uncertain about what to think about this. You know, I'm a Christian. Should I support Falau uh, because he's taken a stand on the Bible? Or should I critique him about the way he's gone about things because it's been pretty insensitive? You know, which, should I take sides when I'm talking to people? Well, I actually don't think you need to take sides. I don't think you'd even need to engage that issue at all. You can just get caught up with it and end up in all sorts of difficulties in your conversation. But did you know, did you notice, I should say, a few weeks ago, as a result of Falau saying that some people go to hell, that the media and the politicians started talking about hell? And the politicians were being asked, do you believe in hell? What an extraordinary thing. The topic was in the public media. Now, I, I don't know of a, an easier way, in a sense, to, uh, to raise the issue of hell, because there it is in the public media. But back to our text. The specific issue here is, is this issue of the curse upon those who mess with the message. So there's a warning. Let's not find ourselves on the wrong side of this. Let's not meddle with the gospel. Let's pass on what we have received from the apostles. A second result of getting it wrong is that our witness is undermined. 
If we say that there's more that you need to do to be right with God than simply believe the message of the gospel, then you're basically saying that the gospel is not enough to save people. It's not good enough. There's something else. There's a, as a way of life that, you know, you've got to plug onto it. There's a level of law-keeping that is needed in order to be right with God, you know. Got to get that right too. Well, what does this say about Jesus and his death? It makes a mockery of what he did on the cross. Didn't it work? Do you remember the Thai cave rescue? Wow, it was only a year ago, it was about June, July last year, and the whole world was mesmerized by this extraordinary example of human spirit, the courage and the cooperation, problem solving, the risk taking and self-sacrifice. This soccer team of 12 boys, they headed off to explore the Tam Luang cave complex in northern Thailand. Their coach finds out about their crazy plans and he follows them in. On the way in, it's dry, but it rains and the caves fill up with water and they're all trapped. The alarm is sounded, the search is on, the bikes are found near the entrance to the cave complex. There's a mounting expectation of tragedy as the days pass by. It's day nine and some Navy SEAL divers searching for these boys, they pop up in a small cavern, two and a half kilometers in, deep inside this cave complex. And there are the boys on this rock ledge, hungry and running out of oxygen. Over the days that followed, the authorities desperately pump a billion liters of water out of the caves as fast as they can, but it's nowhere near enough. Numerous rescue ideas are proposed, each of them risky in the extreme. And the fear of the looming monsoons is growing. A solid downpour would flood the caves and kill the boys within minutes. And of course, it all becomes frightfully real when former Thai Navy diver, Saman Ganan, dies while delivering air tanks. Well, much has been said about the extraordinary rescue celebrations and interviews and of course bravery awards but the key thing I want to say about it this morning is that this was a situation of absolutely no escape. There was nothing these boys or their coach could do to get themselves out of the cave. They couldn't even use the help of the rescuers to get themselves out. Do you understand what I'm saying? Initially there was talk of teaching them to scuba dive so they could kind of get out, all right? But the biggest problem was panic, which is what happens with any beginning scuba diver, particularly in this kind of situation. You know, the distance they had to travel was like the distance from here down to Victor Shopping Center. And most of it is underwater. You're going at a snail's pace, in the dark, confined spaces, some of which are too narrow even to have an air tank on your back. Murky water, vis zero visibility, and even if they bumped their mask off their face for a moment, uh, they would drown. You know, just a little rock there, boom, all over. And so they made a decision, a really significant decision, to sedate the boys with anaesthetics so that they were basically unconscious. And they were acknowledging when they made that decision a fundamental fact that there was no escape 
from this cave only rescue. That is also the human predicament. Human sin, the rejection of God, is an unsolvable problem for us. There's nothing we can do to fix our sin that doesn't involve us facing the wrath of God. Even if you were to get your past completely wiped clean today and you had a brand new fresh start, you still couldn't stop sinning. Turning our back on God, is, it's, it's our thing. It's deeply woven into our humanity and it places us under God's judgment. And so the boys in the cave, they didn't learn to scuba dive. They were sedated. They were knocked out. And what they had to do was simply entrust themselves to their rescuers. They had to say, okay, I'm willing to close my eyes and I, and I hope that I'll open them again in the daylight. When we die, we have a similar hope. That our eyes will open again. Not in the sunlight, but in the light of the Son of God. We have to trust in God's rescue, not our own escape. We mustn't trust our own virtue, our own good works, or our own achievements in life. They must be left in the cave. We mustn't think that Jesus is like some you know, scuba diving instructor, teaching us how to get out on our own. No way. He is a rescuer. He's come to knock you out and deliver you. Imagine that in five years' time, the rescuers contact the boys because they want to have a reunion and they discover the boys have rewritten the story in their blogs, making themselves out to be the heroes rather than the rescuers. If we think we can play any role at all in our salvation, in our forgiveness, in our right standing before God, then we no longer have a gospel. We have no message of hope for the world. Our message is just the same as every other religion. Do this, get this right, don't do that, avoid that. Somehow, hopefully, you'll make the gods happy. Cross your fingers behind your back. Our salvation is always only grace. He saves, believe. And finally, a third result of getting it wrong is that we're enslaved again. If we add to the gospel, then not only do we not have a useful message to share, then we've got nothing to liberate us. We may want to play some kind of role to make some kind of contribution, to feel like we're useful and there's something about us and how we live for which God will surely accept us. But all we do if we think like that is we undermine the power of the gospel in our lives. Just as the false teachers were undermining the gospel by saying that you needed to become Jewish as well. If I think my salvation depends on me, I'm going to get worried. Are my efforts enough? Am I really virtuous? How do I know? How good do I have to be? Where's the line? Am I in? Am I out? I'm not sure. And if this doesn't already make you feel a level of anxiety, it should. Because that's not security and assurance. That's uncertainty. 
It's not joy. It's worry. It's not thankfulness. It's a combination of desperate efforts and sleepless nights because the wages of sin is death. But anxiety is not the only problem if we try to add our own good works in to God's grace. All of our supposed virtue, our selflessness, is all totally undermined if our ultimate motivation is to win our own good outcome. It's selfish. If you're trying to earn your own salvation, your virtue comes from ultimately its origin is self-interest. And so love will never really be love. It'll always be tainted. Your joy will never really be joy. It'll be, you know, or, or patience. It'll, it'll be colored by self-interest. This is not salvation, brothers and sisters. This is slavery. And this is what the gospel relieves us from, frees us from. It's not the way to pure motives. It's not the way God transforms his people. It's the way to becoming a judgmental Christian. I'm more virtuous than you. And if I'm not, then I'm secretly anxious again. And so I might try and appear to be more virtuous than you, but I certainly don't feel liberated. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is always only grace. You're right with God because you believe the gospel, not because of your good deeds, no matter how wonderful you are. God has taken away the penalty for your sin, so you don't need to be worried. And you can rejoice and love and bear suffering, all those things that we do as believers, not because you're trying to prove anything. But because God has accepted you, you have this platform on which to live your free life. It's freedom. Now, we've covered quite a few ideas, not only from this passage. I must admit we have reached forward a little bit into the rest of Galatians. I've kind of wanted to give you a bit of an idea of how the, the whole letter is sort of heading off. Um, and we'll explore more of those ideas in coming weeks. But I want to finish uh, this morning by telling you about my grandfather, when my grandfather became a Christian, he became a nice person. Some of you may recall that I've mentioned him previously because he had an affair. He walked out on my grandmother and on my father and uncle. But that was just part of the picture. You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a nice man. He was worldly. He was preoccupied with his status, and he'd actually achieved an amazing worldly status himself. He's the manufacturing company managing director. He knew how to charm people and how to win friends and how to earn money. But he retired, and all of that affirming world around him suddenly evaporated. There was no one to tell him how wonderful he was. And he hit the drink hard enough to get himself into hospital. And then one day in hospital, he told my dad that he had nothing left to live for. And dad said, well, Jesus has something for you to live for. My grandfather replied, well, you better tell me what it is. And so thus began his conversations about the gospel. He joined a church, gave his life to Christ, and then things started to change. 
He wasn't a naturally humble person, but he had been humbled by his experience and the liberation of the gospel. He became interested in other people, including a genuine interest for my dad and for his welfare and for our family. Previously, he'd only ever pulled dad down and, you know, and never validated his choices, particularly his choice to go into full-time gospel ministry. He used to tell him that he was wasting his life. Well, then one day, uh, they're, they're waiting in this pizza shop to pick up the pizza. And all of a sudden, my grandfather starting, started asking my dad some questions. You know what he started asking about? The book of Jeremiah. My grandfather had joined a home group and he'd started learning about the Bible and now he had questions and he was asking my dad, how do I understand this? How do I apply this to my life? He grew contentment, generosity, love, all the fruits of the Spirit actually, as we'll see when we get to Galatians 5. My dad says this is the most miraculous conversion he's ever seen. He knew the old man well. He was very glad to meet the new man. Now, maybe you're thinking, as you hear this story, haven't I just been saying that the gospel is about grace, not works? No, I didn't say that. The gospel is about the order of things. Grace comes before works. Good works can never produce salvation. They can never liberate you. Only belief in the gospel can do that. But the grace of God will transform you. So then, what does it look like for you to live in line with the grace of God? Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, as we think about our sin and we think about our foolishness, our failings, we think about our, our captivity to sorting ourselves out, our captivity to seeing how we feel in relation to others and all of those things, Father, we remember your grace. Your grace which through the extraordinary work of Christ on the cross and the ongoing transforming work of your Holy Spirit in us your grace which you save us. We thank you that we are forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross. And we thank you for the wonderful hope of seeing you because of what he's done. Please do transform us from the inside out, starting with grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.